to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we're going to be talking about the farmer protests around the world, what's behind them, and what can be done about them. Plus, we have music from Olivia Fern. Thanks for being here. No Christiana this week, although that's not 100% sure. She may drop in at any point in the next 45 minutes. I'm sure she's mysterious and marvellous and appears. In a meeting of consequential importance above our pay grade, but we will struggle on and um, and, and address this week's topic. But before we do, um, I would just like to say a big thank you to listeners. Um, last week we delved in, of course, um, as regular listeners will remember, into the issue of 1.5 degrees, whether we can hold that target, what the issues are around it. We, of course, pointed out that this is a moment of enormous peril, but we also looked at the issues around whether we can actually try and hold that line, and if so, how we would do that. And we had a lot of messages from people. A lot of people wrote to us on social media, wrote to us directly with different perspectives. It was really interesting to see your insights. Thank you. That level of engagement makes us very happy. Paul, any comments on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was a great episode um, and a great discussion um, I, I read many of the comments uh, and my one my one reflection here is not to revisit that whole debate uh, but to just um, reassure any any listeners that at no time I think uh, were any of us suggesting uh, that we should uh, take the the climate crisis less seriously uh, we absolutely have to communicate to the whole world uh, that we're engaged in a in a gigantic um, existential challenge, and that communication must persist and rise in its intensity. And I think we all agree with that. Uh, the discussion was was a little bit more about how the targeting and framing goes on, but a hundred percent. Let us uh, commit to raising uh, the profile of the climate crisis. I think we're, we're all aligned on that. Yeah, and I mean, that's an issue that, you know, Christiana and I have faced, and you as well, I guess, you know, as well. For years, the concept of stubborn optimism kind of sounds like you're kind of deciding everything's going to be all right in the face of come what may. And actually, we mean something very different to that. We mean you have to look really clearly at the serious reality and the nature of what we're facing and decide that you're going to show up and do your best for it. So it's slightly counter-definitional, so I totally understand why in some cases people... um, uh, sort of push back on that. And that was only a small proportion of the messages we received, but really welcome that, really welcome yep. all kinds yep. of engagement and conversation. So thank you. Now, um, this week, we are going to talk about something really fascinating that is unfolding all across Europe at this minute. And that is the protests that are taking place um, across Europe and actually well beyond in Latin America and in India by farmers. We're recording this today on Tuesday, the 27th of February. And today, Tractors have been driven into the centre of Brussels. Manure has been sprayed on police. Eggs have been thrown. And Paul, I'm a you know I was reading my uh, Daily Telegraph article earlier today, and actually Daily I'm in Telegraph. No, I'm Tom. in no doubt that this is about you sit with net, the Daily Telegraph. This is I'm in no doubt this is about net zero. Now <laughs> net zero is destroying farmers' livelihoods. Okay, These targets to deal with climate the change to keep us within 1.5 degrees has been made very clear to me by the Daily Telegraph that what the farmers are doing is they are expressing real anger 
that governments are moving faster than they want to. They're introducing environmental legislation. And we are seeing an, a, a, a powerful populist pushback telling democratic governments that this is too much. It's too fast and their livelihoods are under threat and they will not accept it. And we now need to see a rollback. This is the sole cause of these protests. It has been made clear to me by the Daily Telegraph. Paul, care, would you care to respond? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that our listeners understand that that climate change is, is a terrible threat to the world. But of course, so is the Daily Telegraph. And, uh, you know, Tom Rivet Karnick, somebody I've known for, for many, many years and, uh, and I used to admire, has changed. He's, 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 he's changed his spots. He's, he's uh, had a personality transplant and, and he's become uh, really quite a sort of a, a strange kind of authoritarian, maybe a little bit eclectic, weird. Sort of slightly aggressive, sort of nasty. You just turned into a horrible person, Tom. Why'd you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, I just feel like my eyes have been open. I mean, listen to this. The EU is already painfully aware of the populist rebellion bubbling up against its net zero plans. Tractors have been on the march in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Belgium, and the Netherlands. What we are now seeing is a refusal to accept net zero autocrats. Um, <laughs> so is that, is that really what's going on? Could I get a job as a net zero autocrat? I mean, I would really like that. I'll call you, know, I'll like call you that. Big that desk. That, was, that last office. phrase was mine. That wasn't net zero autocrats, wasn't the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> I mean, so, look, just... Uh, what's just, really uh, going uh, on here? What's really going well, on? Well, a serious point is, I don't think I've ever before felt sorry for riot police, but there's quite something. <laughs> you know, you're standing there in all this big black gear with your helmet and your shield and you've got the tear gas and the water cannon, and I sort of... 30 ton tractor goes past yeah, you spraying at, silage at, at and 50 manure. miles an hour and you jump out of the way so um you know in all seriousness uh farmers appear to be unbelievably effective at uh at complaining about the conditions that they are are working under but uh but thank you for setting this up so so beautifully tom because um of course, I rather suspect, like me, uh, you might agree that that particular narrative that you just expressed is an extraordinary bit of piggybacking on something completely different. Uh, and so, I tell think me, it's, in what way? Well, it, well, it's it's natural for us to um, kind of imagine because I, I, I know that we do, and an awful lot of people listen to the podcast uh, have the, have the privilege, I suppose, to to work on climate change. And we see things through a climate change lens. So we imagine that this is is about climate change. I've been doing some research and listening to some podcasts uh, where Good you hear farmers yeah. in France talk about this. And I'm going to quote uh, uh, a podcast called Farming Funny, uh, where some, some kind of rather jolly farmers discuss these problems. And they had a, a wonderful uh, person called Morgan Odie. And she's a, a French farmer who's a, a leader and very much at the centre of this. And they, they talked for fully... 30 to 40 minutes before mentioning climate change once they talked about uh this being about a fair income uh that the cost of production was going up but not prices uh, that they need to earn a decent income and they talked about it being uh, a question of dignity uh, they they did complain about bureaucracy and red tape for subsidies um but they they spoke about how in france particularly the workers unions were there as well and then got on to points that are almost a little bit more geopolitically philosophical. Like uh, she said, I don't want to export my products to Brazil. Um, 
you know, that there's there's a there's a lot of hurt around the uh, Mercosur uh, agreement uh, opening up uh, markets for food uh, in Europe to to uh, the producers from Latin America, and. Um, you know, they, they talked about uh, the, the mobilization of Indian farmers being inspired by food sovereignty, not nationalism, and, and, and said, look, why import, you know, uh, local food, uh, you know, should be supported and protected. So when they finally uh, did get round to talking about climate change, they, they said that it exists. And of course, farmers know all about this and the biodiversity crisis. But again, um, I actually listened to a different podcast where a, a Ugandan farmer sort of said, look, climate change is, is a whole society problem. And farmers who are under the most enormous financial pressure, um, you know, can't necessarily be expected to um, take further risks and, and, and experience further complications uh, dealing with this. So that's that's the, the sort of the first level of pushback, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm what I'm hearing you say there and, and what I would agree is that, first of all, farmers are having a really hard time. And we've been yeah. sort of joking at the beginning of this podcast, but that's not a joke and it's very, very no, painful. If you're joke. living in in, in um, an agricultural context and that's your work, first of all, we just experienced the hottest year on record. So yields are changing. The way in which you engage with the land is changing. If you speak to anyone who's closely connected with the land, they will say that. Secondly, there is an increasing amount of bureaucracy from governments, from the EU, from the UK, from elsewhere, in part to try to incorporate environmental concerns into their policies, but not only, and we'll come back to that. Secondly, there are rising costs with inflation that are feeding into how farmers are. Deep Paul, you want to come in? You're waving. No, no, I want oh, to say Christiana's hello to Christiana. here. <laughs> Christian <laughs> Christiana, so nice to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Hi, hi. Sorry that I'm so late here. That's all right. That's all right. No worries. So so um, we've basically kicked off this episode, as you know, and we're talking about farming, and we've kind of set it up that also, as you know, what farmers are protesting about is, of course, these draconian net zero targets that are being implemented all around the world. And we're just kind of getting into talking about that. And Paul has explained to me that it might be a little bit more complicated than just purely about net zero. Maybe there's a bit of political opportunism going on here, which may include a whole range of other different issues that are being piggybacked on. So I don't know if you want to come in at that point and kind of give your analysis of what's happening, or if you'd like to listen for a bit and then you jump in in a sec. You know, I better listen for quite a bit because um, jumping in in the middle of a conversation, especially about something as sensitive and as important as farming, um, could be very dangerous for me and for you. So I will be <laughs> listening first. All right. So, well, there was, so I was, it started badly, Christiana, because Tom had been reading the Daily Telegraph and something terrible had happened to him. And he'd, he'd developed this whole narrative about climate change and the, the, the farmers wanting climate change and welcoming climate change and all sorts of bonkers stuff. And, uh, and actually, I, I, I was proud of having done a certain amount of research and listening to quite a lot As of- As usual. <laughs> As you usual. Well, you know, <laughs> the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. So I was doing a lot of research into what the, what these farmers are, are concerned about, and they're worried. They are deeply concerned about facing abject poverty um, for for you know fully the last you know few years, the last decade that uh, they, they've been suffering significant inflation, um, falling uh, prices for their produce, and 
farmers in the EU particularly are very concerned about EU markets being opened up uh, to to global competition and uh, and you know the the dignity of farmers who who are having to one of them who I think was a bit crazy but he was talking about the globalists want to bankrupt us so they can take our land well that's obviously not true but the point being my 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 central thesis for my research was this is in, almost entirely about poverty and it's not about climate change so that's helpful and i would agree with that but i would also say that it is also true that governments in the eu and the uk and elsewhere are trying to integrate climate strategy with their agricultural policy and we're seeing this in different places where agricultural policy is being evolved to try to be more wildlife friendly to try to store more carbon in the soils in a range of different ways and some of that is creating more bureaucracy for people to deal with in a manner that is then precipitating as one of the causes this pushback. But what I would also say is that that is being very cleverly captured by right-of-centre yeah. parties to present this as a revolt against net zero, which it absolutely is not. Yeah. Hmm. No, 100%. And I mean, just the farmer's talking about having to you know, work all day uh, and, and not really be able to survive economically, and then to spend a couple of hours in the evening uh, doing doing sort of administration essentially online, and phrases like uh, "there's no one answers any emails" and "there's no one to talk to," which yeah. I think we're all familiar with. Last time we tried to do anything online, uh, but you know, it, it, it's one thing when you're you know you're trying to book a hotel or something, but it's another thing when it's your when your, your livelihood. livelihood is dependent. Exactly. And actually connected to that issue. So in preparation for this podcast, I actually went and had a conversation with my neighbouring farmer. So I live in a, in a rural area of Devon and uh, I have a very good friend who farms a few hundred acres nearby. And I actually invited him to come on the podcast and talk to us. And he didn't want to do that for reasons that will be clear in a minute, but he had a really interesting perspective. He said, look, I'm fifth generation farmer and what is being asked of me by government is shifting. However, I see that weather patterns are changing. I see that we're in an emergency. So I'm engaging with it and I'm struggling with all these online systems. And when I do that and I try to listen to what's being told to me, I shift partially away from food production. I shift towards nature restoration alongside food production. And actually, financially, this is just the UK, he told me that he can do very well as a result of that. And so his analysis of this situation, and this is why he didn't want to come on the podcast, is that much of this protest is about a nostalgic hearkening back to a imagined status quo in the past when everything was great and a refusal to change for lots of reasons that many of us can understand, um, but that what is being presented to farmers is an opportunity for transformation that many of them are being unable to grasp because they're unable to deal with the bureaucracy of transformation. But if they were able to grasp it, some governments, and I can't say this for everyone where there are riots taking place, are providing a pathway where that is feasible to do both. Wow. <laughs> um, gosh, Tom. I, I I don't know that I can come down that harshly. Um, I think your neighbor is incredibly enlightened and perhaps quite unique because it seems to me that farmers in Europe, but 
anywhere else, speaking from Costa Rica, very agricultural country, are actually unfairly squeezed, is my sense. Mm. Because, as your friend has just told you, he inherited agricultural practices from his grandparents, their grandparents, you know, way up the line. And most farmers, be they men or women, most farmers in the world are women, by the way, are still practicing agricultural practices that they have inherited from many generations and hundreds of years. They're also trying to operate within um, financial, political, economic paradigm that operated well in the past. So their practices are the ones of the past, and the paradigms that surround them be they the policies, the subsidies, the trade agreements, operated more or less well in the past. The challenge that they face, consciously or not, is not, I would call it nostalgia, I would call it just complete paralysis because that world that they inherited and that they operated in and that their parents and grandparents operated in is no more. Because we're now hit by climate change, invariably, which is the most deeply disruptive factor to agriculture for sure, as well as to everything else. It is completely predictable that we will not return to what used to be the norm. That is no longer the norm. And so how can you blame them for operating in a reality that doesn't that that no longer exists and for that reality that is emerging we frankly do not have the policies the subsidies the trade agreements all of the paradigm that would truly help them to shift from where they were to where they need to go, which is high resilience, regenerative agricultural practices, restoration of nature, a completely different paradigm. But they're not being helped by that. They're not being helped by that because governments are themselves still struggling to figure out what are the new policies, what are the new subsidies, what are the new agreements. They don't really have a clear idea. All of this, frankly, is they're all in unknown space trying to figure out together or individually. And so the farmers are, frankly, very squeezed here. Yeah. They're very squeezed. I don't think it's about, you know, romantic nostalgia. I think it's frustration. And I'm closer to where Paul mentioned this is a true threat for them. It's a threat for their livelihood because they're operating according to one paradigm. Nobody's really giving them the support to shift to another paradigm. And the difference between those two is a direct threat to my livelihood. So I'm more in paralysis, frankly, and anger than nostalgia. I th thank you for that, Christiana. And and let's just let me give a little bit more what I'm going to call the economic context in the EU because I think it's it's a it's a great case study and that's where. Can, the, can I just so say I, one thing before Christi before you do? Sure. I'm really sorry for this, Christiana. The suggestion though is that actually some governments are providing that pathway, and 
we know that changing society is partly about policies and it's partly about mindset. And I would not have brought this to this conversation if I hadn't heard it directly from a farmer who'd been on the land for generations. And he said, actually, it's not perfect. It's difficult to navigate. I went on the website myself and it's incredibly complicated and requires real attention. But a lot of support is there. And actually, if we want to make the shift and we want to restore the soils and we want to be more... um, um, progressive in terms of how we deal with our natural environment some governments are doing their are doing some elements of that and farmers also need to realize what you also said which is the past is not coming back and they need to embrace a different kind of future and yes it is any time there is major transition in any sector and it involves human suffering that deserves our compassion but it also deserves the reality that every sector needs to transform And farming is not excluded from that. So as painful as it is, farmers need to embrace a mindset of transformation, take what opportunities they can and try to move forward. And where there's genuine gaps, then we need to try to fill them. I'm not really quite as unfeeling as it probably sounds like I am, but I'm just trying to make the point. You've set up perfectly the comment I wanted to make, Tom, perfectly. Oh, no, Um, and I want to come in also. (laughs) Now what do we do? You can go first, Christiana, because then I'm going to kind of try and bring it all together with my meta-analysis. Okay, okay, thank God for that. Um, No, Tom, I I realise that, you know, with, with with a cool head and just, you know, If we're just led by the brain, you're absolutely right. But I put myself in farmers' shoes, okay? And and let me just be transparent. My father was a farmer before he became a politician. And so it's very different, qualitatively different, Tom, to have inherited agricultural practices from my father and his father than having to go to a website and having to figure out how the heck do I make this shift? It's qualitatively different. Totally. Right? Yeah. And and so and so for me that's that's the frustration. That's the paralysis because it all of a sudden everything that I have in my legacy, my whole, you know, identity that I have inherited and and things that I do in my sleep that I don't even think about because I get up at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, the day just goes forward mm. because that's what all my grandparents have been doing. Now, all of a sudden, I have to go like, no, 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 wait a minute. First, I have to turn on the computer, go to a website that I don't even know exists, figure out, you know, what they're telling me, fill in a whole bunch of documents, buy completely new, new, I don't know, seed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's qualitatively a different enterprise, right. a different enterprise. And, and that is the piece, you know, there's a huge delta there. Yes, of course, everybody has to transition, but by God, that's a difficult transition. Yeah. And yeah. especially when you are in what I'm going to call here, terrible pain, right? Um, I once managed to mix up this um, supermarket slogan with a with a line from George Orwell: um, "Everyday low prices is a boot being smashed into a human face forever." Uh, <laughs> if you look at the context here, okay, the auto workers in the EU um, get two point eight times more GDP than the agricultural workers. So you know when we're you know they're in so much stronger position. There, you know, there there are nine point four million people working in agriculture in the EU. 
and their average uh, salary is 28,800 euro. And I'm going to give you just one shocking statistic. You could put five European citizens in a small car. Uh, they are the five richest in Europe. Uh, Bernard, Francois, Amanasio, Dieter and Rudolf. And if they decided to do something about this, they could double the salary of 9.4 million farmers for one year and seven months with just what they have in their bank accounts. So the wealth inequalities are so gigantic that five people would be sitting on 426 billion in personal wealth and then 9.4 million people would be struggling to, 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 to make a living. Uh, this is the kind of context. And I, I just leave the last words to somebody that many of our listeners will know, uh, Thomas Piketty, who wrote that incredible book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century in 2014, um, sold 200,000 copies hardback uh, in 2014 in its first year, uh, breaking a record for, for the uh, Harvard uh, a Business Press, Harvard University Press. But my point is, what the, the thing he said is the 1%, he was referring to the USA, but it's a global phenomenon, uh, are at the levels of wealth inequality are at the level of pre, almost at the level of pre-revolutionary France. So if you think you know the peasants are revolting, and I've heard French farmers say they're happy to be called peasants, they are revolting. They're revolting because absolutely chronic inequalities in wealth are making their lives insufferable, and it's fixable. But I think. We, we need to think about the, you know, the, the discussion we've been having. We need to think about climate change, but we also need to think about a societal context. So I'm completely with you there, but a couple of things. One is climate change is going to make that wealth inequality worse because worse. it's going to make Way it harder worse. for farmers, right? So, Way worse. So, so this is not actually about trying to roll back policies that would protect those farmers by mitigating the worst impacts of climate change that may the manifestation of that in the way that the policies are rolled out it may appear to be that back the way but that is political opportunism trying to claim that we need to roll that back and it won't help any of them and secondly to just go back to the earlier point what we need and i don't know how we do this but we need in in the eu and this because you just gave the number we need 9.4 million rural entrepreneurs that own land and are prepared to be based in the past but face to the future how do they install solar how do they change their farming practices so they can create more plant-based protein how do they think about different rural forms of income that can en enable us to holiday closer to home and find these solutions i totally accept your point christiana that actually there is stuff that is in our bones. And actually, when you think back to the kind of rural economy, that's the place where many of us kind of idolise this sense that that's kind of where we all ultimately come from. And for this to change, and for people in those spaces to need to make such fundamental transformations goes beyond being painful. It kind of goes against core principles of who, who you are. But that's what's going to be required of all of us, right? I mean, this mm. is a, these are the early the early signs of what's going to happen to manufacturing sectors and, you know, all sectors of the economy as we try to pivot to this total transformation of a net zero regenerative economy. So, yes, it's painful. Yes, we need to have compassion. And we need to find the tools, the policies, the education to embrace that and unleash that sense of possibility where yeah. you are based in the past, but you're not shackled by it and you're looking to the future to really try and transform. Yes, I, I take that. I take that. Um, 
as long as it's done in a sensitive and supportive way rather than ramming things down people's throat. Because you can't, I mean, especially if you're losing your livelihood, if you can't feed your kids, um, you know, I I, I don't give a hoot of what's happening around the world. I just want to feed my kids. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's the balance that we have to reach there. How do, how do we do both at the same time? And I mean, if we sort of step back and try and look at the root problem, notwithstanding my long speech about inequality, which I think is a big part of it. But the other the other one is, is uh, I heard some farmers saying, you know, consumers don't pay for greener products. Well, Actually, consumers don't pay for defense. Consumers don't often pay for health services. We have to have a, a system in our society that ensures that funds are found for these purposes. Now, everyone sort of says, well, there isn't the money or there isn't the political will. And I think a, another root cause is, is we still haven't seen governments telling the public the level of danger that we're in and the need for us to come together as societies uh, to solve these problems. I was really shocked to discover that farmers in Germany are very unhappy about having um, subsidies for, for diesel fuel uh, removed, uh, you know, kind of abruptly. And that's that's kind of logical. You can see why they would be unhappy. Isn't that the focus for the EU electric tractor project? Isn't that when we come together and say, well, if we, you know, if we're going to reduce subsidies for fossil fuels in farming, we need to think about how the EU and kind of an agricultural superstate uh, can develop the technologies of the of the 21st century, you know, that are zero or, or you know near zero carbon. That's the sort of the step that we still don't seem to be able to make as societies to be able to reconstruct our thinking around this this new narrative of, of national and global security. Recognize that within our societies, there's just more than enough money to deal with it. It's just concentrated in these, these dull lakes where it's doing nothing. Yeah. So if I can summarize where I think we've gotten to here, it is that we have a kind of a, a, a deep compassion for what is happening to a sector in transition, but also a realization that that sector has to transform and that society has to relate, has to renew its relationship with land and the agricultural sector However, if we're really serious about that, then we need to be really serious about providing the resources necessary for that transition and also facilitating all of the things that we get that that I often see people really light up about when you talk about a world in which we've dealt with the climate crisis, right? They don't really get excited, to be honest, about lots of solar panels and green steel, but they do get excited about the butterflies coming back and a boom of biodiversity and the return of the Mm. forests and all these other different things. And if we want that as a society, we need to have fair, reasonable, just policies now and throughout the transition to support those people who are living in those places, to enable them to actually support that transformation. And they've got to play their role too in meeting that with a sense of not being trapped by the past. They can't be expected to do it without that. But with that support, it's actually essential that they help us lead the way through to this transformation because otherwise we're not going to do it. They're an essential part of it. I think that's a beautiful summary, Tom. Thank you very much for summarizing that. The only addition that I would make to that is if there's one sector that we will never be able to do without, it's the food production sector. Right. That's and, a good point. You know, I yeah. mean, how, what will we do without food? You know, if push comes to shove, maybe we can go without cars, I don't know, and airplanes and things like that. But food is absolutely 
front and center to human survival. And so, you know, for those who are producing that to understand that they're actually in an absolute critical, unbeatable, privileged position, um, and that if if they do, as you were suggesting, if they do change their mindset, if you will, and say like, wow, okay, we we actually, you know, have this, have this, the whole transition of the whole economy, um, but we're sitting at, if you will, at the fulcrum of that and how we, can we take advantage of that? That's the point. Right. Instead of, you know, assuming that the whole system is against them, which is, I'm sure, the way it feels, for sure, they feel that the whole system is against them. And so the invitation is to shift that and transform it and go like, okay, the old system, we're no longer there, but for the new system, actually everybody's depending on them. Yeah. Everybody is depending on them. Um, and to understand that there is, at least in theory, although not yet in practice, except for your farmer friend who has figured that out, there's a huge opportunity because we need them. We yeah. so need them. Yeah. But but that's not the way that they perceive it. No, no, no. And, and to, to, two little points there. One is um, your farmer friend, I, I do understand. I do hear farmers saying that they themselves do not share uh, good ideas enough amongst each other. Uh, actually, there's enormous scope to try and flip that and say, I think I found a way around this and I want to tell everyone rather than I think I've way around, found a way around this and I'm going to keep it to myself. Um, but, but to Christiana, your point about priorities in our society, I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing particularly wrong with this, but the, the richest person of all in Europe, Bernard Arnault, he made his 222 billion euro fortune from Givenchy, Dior, and Louis Vuitton. So that's really where we're focusing our society in, in, in some regards, luxury goods. Can we not see enormous scope to tax luxury goods uh, and use those funds to transfer to these fundamentals of our society, our food? And indeed, when I heard you talking about bringing back nature, uh, Tom, I was really moved. I think that that's an incredibly powerful narrative that we can kind of restrict. You know, we, we've talked about how you've got greenhouse gas emissions up, but nature pulling down, and they're two sides of the same coin. But I think that the, the last and toughest question that I'd like to put to you two, because I don't know how to answer it, it's really easy for us to be so critical. But how could our, 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 our politicians, our civil servants um, thread this needle? How, you know, what, you know, I can't, I can't so easily see the mistakes they're making. Um, and, and I wonder what's the roadmap if you're in government listening to this podcast, either a politician or a civil servant or, or in, in, a, in a support of government consultancy or whatever, or as a voter even, what, what's, the, what's the trick to, 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 to bring this round to where we all seem to agree it should go? Tom is the political strategist. Huh? <laughs> I don't have a political strategy answer for you. I mean, I, I would say that thanks in large part to the Paris Agreement, we have collective government agreement that we need to do something significant about emissions in the coming decades. And we have not sufficient, but meaningful policies around the world to do something about that. That works its way through into legislation and then into regulation. And then people like our farmers that we're talking about here end up having to try to work out what that means for them. Having spent fully 25 minutes on the website, which my farmer friend directed me to, to try and work out what subsidies, 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm a reasonably well-educated person who understands things like the UNFCCC negotiation process, but that is nothing compared to the complexity <laughs> of trying to navigate the subsidy process in one little country in Northern Europe. So if you then look at the EU process, the thing I would say is that actually, and, and actually we've had this brilliant brief prepared this week where we've gone through all of the countries in the world where protests are currently taking place so France, Poland, UK, Germany, Czech Republic, Spain, Portugal, Romania, Belgium, Greece, India, Brazil. The one common thread in all of them is bureaucracy and red tape and difficulty yeah. of accessing the solutions. So I would say actually, and this is, this is easy to say and it's difficult to do when you're a government, that there needs to be a streamlining of the opportunity and the, and the upside. What is in it for you? That needs to be clearly and easily accessible by people because if it's available but it's dis you know it's complex and you have to calculate it and how it all works people will just go back to the status quo that they've always done that that instinctive response to do what you've been doing for decades will reassert itself so i exactly. think the policies exactly. aren't because perfect but some are there and they should be easily accessible easily because exactly well put tom because what what those you know red tape policies and bureaucracy is competing with is what it, what I have in my bones that I don't need to go to any website right right yeah so so it's it's a huge huge competition I mean honestly um very difficult to come to that level of behavioral change uh that competes with what what I've always done what's in my bones well, you know I, I get up at four o'clock and I I go milk the cows or you know tend to the land I mean and and against that all of these complicated red types and bureaucracies so well put well put it cannot be uh, a website a website thousands of websites cannot be the answer Actually, it has to be, I think, what we call, I don't know what it's called in Europe, we call it here agricultural extension, which is people who are trained in what the new practices are, who actually go right. to the farmers and bring them along. It is no, You cannot expect anyone to go to a website. I'm sorry. You, ha you need the person-to-person person-to-person uh, -person conversation to bring people over the hump to a completely new world. Mm. And, and on that bureaucracy point, if I can bring forward a theory without really any evidence at all, um, I have a motto, you know, often wrong, but never in doubt. And, and this is something that I, I fundamentally hold. And um, but that's what we love about you, Paul. Yeah. And the, the theory I have, in all seriousness, is it goes something like this. Uh, and I've I've had some professional experience in, in in building a kind of bureaucracy, and you just can't start at at seventy miles an hour. You know, you can't do that. There's an enormous attraction to say, well, let's start with a comprehensive baseline, and to put you know tens of millions of farmers into an infinitely complicated process. The the true learning about how to use our amazing internet to develop a new capability like this is to start with something small and manageable and well-supported and then to tend that and build it and grow it from there. And I think what we've seen here is uh, for understandable reasons, climate change is so big, a sort of administrative overreach failing to appreciate that that actually is, is, is not the way to cultivate a relationship with, with farmers, that you need to start 
with people where they are and build up from there. And, and actually, if you look at the great internet stories of, of, of our time, they've all started like that, very, very simple, and built up to the complexity that they now have. You can't, you can't bring people in at the deep end. It doesn't work. They sink. So true. And, and just to, to finish off, if we're finishing off, too, um, to underline what we said at the very beginning, the danger is we, if we don't do this and we don't hold hands and bring people along in a positive way, is that the far right completely manipulates Which this. is what's oh. happening. Complete yeah. manipulation. Absolutely. And it's so easily done and reframed in that way. And then we have like people like our friends at the Daily Telegraph and many other right-wing papers who say, this is an attack on net zero. And like so many things, right? It's, it's a truth told with bad intent, right? It has a seed of truth to it, which makes the lie that much more pernicious. It's not the totality of the truth, but there are some elements of it which makes it land with people and makes it powerful. Mm. And, and and commercial interests commercial interests supporting that. I mean, you know, we we, we do have a, a very uh, assertive industry wide campaign uh, funded by industries that are threatened by the yeah. transformation. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, Tom. No, I think that's it. Unless anyone has anything to add, I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks for joining us, Christiana. Lovely, you could come in and yes. uh, great to have your views. Um, and now. We're going to be doing a Q&A next week. So please send us your questions. This is specifically about Christiana's, Christiana and Issa's nature series. Not next week, Sarah's telling me. No, no next week, not. This is helpful guidance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say not. Next not. week, sorry, you, Tom, but next, next week. week. It is the week after next. The week Excellent. after next. Okay. Next week, we celebrate Women's Day. Next and, week, um, we celebrate Women's Day. So PD and I won't be here. And then the week after that. We do the Q&A. So we need your questions on the brilliant nature series that Christiana and Issa ran. Um, so please send this in. We'll put that out on social media as well. And we'll leave you with a piece of music. Now, this artist, Olivia Fern, was suggested by a listener who listens Yay! to the podcast and said this would be a brilliant person. We reached out. Here she is with her song, Calling Us Home. Enjoy. And we will see you, or Christiana will see you, for International Women's Day next week. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Calling Us Home is, on the one hand, about my own personal relationship to the land and how she speaks to me, but it's also, in a wider sense, about how, as a species, we really need to hear her call, the call back home to the earth and to right relationship with her, and in turn, our own hearts, really, because our disconnection from the earth is also a mirror of our own disconnection from ourselves and our wild nature.
go another episode of outrage and optimism so i'm clay but more importantly who you just heard was olivia fern now olivia is an artist based in the lake district national park in northwest england absolutely stunning part of the country and equally beautiful music to match last week on the show we had on luke wallace who brings music and education and storytelling together This week, another artist bringing music into places we need it. Olivia is known for playing not only festival gigs, music gigs, but environmental activism events and has recently been recognized by the Arts Council England to receive funding to put on this tour of a concert and singing circle events for women, as well as record new music centered around bringing women together to sing. Check this out. So there's a tour happening soon between end of March and middle of May where Olivia is inviting women across the UK to participate in these singing circles meant to encourage, uplift, and empower women through discovering their voice. These events are free. And if you are a woman in the UK, you can go check out more details on Olivia's Instagram on how to participate. I've got my phone here. I'm actually watching a reel on her Instagram now. And yeah, the dates are between end of March through mid-May. Such a cool idea and a great way to explore the power of your voice. I can't stress this enough. We love this kind of event here at Outrage and Optimism. Yeah, Olivia, this is so cool. Oh, and if you go to one of these events, do give us a shout about how it was. There's no prerequisite of being a singer to join. Absolutely a welcoming and inviting opportunity with a concert by Olivia to follow. So again, check the show notes for more info on how to attend oliviafern.com. Thank you, Olivia. And thank you to listener Ciara Shannon for emailing me. I hope I got your name right. Let this be an encouragement to the rest of you who may have a music suggestion for the podcast. You can email me, clay at globaloptimism.com. 
Okay, speaking of the importance of women's voices, next week we are celebrating International Women's Day here on the show. Very much looking forward to that. And just a schedule update. The following week, we need your questions for a mailbag episode. We've done these in the past. You submit a question, the hosts answer it and discuss. Now, there are many ways to submit a question written or recorded. If you go the extra mile, wait, do people say kilometer? Like the the extra, I've never heard that. Maybe they do, but anyway. Uh, If you go the extra mm, unit of measurement and film your question, uh, no promises, but that's great for us because it could be a fun piece for our listener community to see on social media. And obviously we'd get your permission before we posted it, but I'm literally coming up with this idea right now. Sorry, Kame, I didn't run this by you. Anyway, however you want to submit your question, written or recorded, please send it to us on Instagram, LinkedIn, via email. We've got our eyes on our inboxes and we really want to hear from you. This episode isn't possible without you. We'll be bringing on Isabel Cavalier, who co-hosted the Nature series with Christiana that came out a few weeks ago. Very excited to take your questions. All right, that's everything from us this week. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online and subscribe to our newsletter via our website, outrageandoptimism.org. See you all next week. Mm